Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, August 26th, we're studying Lamentations chapter 5, verses 1 to 22. In the final poem in the book of Lamentations, the people pray that the Lord would remember them because he is king who reigns forever, and he is the only one who can restore his people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. As we get started this morning, Pastor Ulmer, let's talk a little context. This is the last chapter of the book of Lamentations. What do we need to know about the book as a whole, what we've seen so far, and what we're going to encounter here that will help us with the verses we've got today? Yeah, so so far in the Book of Lamentations, you're dealing with a piece of literature that consists of five poems. Um, the first of those poems are, are longer acrostic poems dealing with uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. to the Babylonians, and this fifth poem that we are dealing with is a little bit shorter, but continues many of the themes as Lamentations chapters 1 through 4, with the one note that in this particular prayer, in this particular poem, um, that the speakers have been basically reduced to one, because in this format, in this short poem slash prayer, this ends up being what's probably a community-type lament to be used in a worship setting to express uh, their lament to God. It does stand out, I think, just reading through the Book of Lamentations, that this is a shorter poem than the first four that we've encountered. You you just get the—as as we'll read it later, you can— I mean, you can hear it in the way that it progresses from one verse to the next. And, I mean, is there— I don't know. We've talked about this a little bit here on Sharper Iron that these poems are not arranged, you know, chronologically. There's more of a theological arrangement to them. And certainly the themes get, they get uh, drawn out by each poem in different ways. But do you think there's, I mean, is there an effect to that by having this shorter prayer that does stand out a little bit as the very last chapter? Is th- it seems like there's there's an intended effect to that as the book closes that way. I'm not sure I can put my finger on it. I don't. Do you have any thoughts on that, Pastor Elmer? Yeah, and in doing the the study uh, for this uh, session today, I, I think it's it's important to realize that that the conclusion of this lament being this kind of unified community voice here. Everything that the people have gone through, everything that they've experienced, everything that they've missed, kind of comes to this culmination in a, in a communal prayer that kind of the direction of the book drives people to worship. And as we go through this talk this morning about Lamentations 5, I think there's a very, very good reason for that being driven to worship. And that's 
the, the people were brought to a point where they realized what had gone wrong, and they also figured out the only thing in the world that was going to save them from the calamity, and the, their salvation was going to be none other than uh, go to the God, who at this point in their history seems to have become their enemy. Hmm. I, I think I think you that that does start to help me with what this poem does in terms of the effect and the the feel that it has to it. It it is a prayer. I think really in its totality, and we've seen the people pray during the Book of Lamentations, but it hasn't been as focused as I think this chapter really has that feel to. And I, I do, it does have a, a very a context that seems to be in the sense of a, a worship context. Not that the others are absent that, but this one, it just seems more focused, more directed. And, and even though, again, we're not you know speaking chronologically here, but it does, I think, wrap up very nicely all that we've seen in the book of lamentations and the way that it does that is by drawing all of it very very well toward god that that ultimately they've recognized all along look we've rebelled against the lord if we're going to to get out of this the one who put us in the situation because we rebelled in him the lord he's the only way out so we've got to go to him and i, I mean i think in that way this poem really it serves to tie up the book very nicely and it directs us finally to God as the only solution to anything that we've seen in the book of Lamentations so far. Yeah. And, and I think one of the, the ways that that point is made overtly is that the, the, the lines in the previous four poems that were kind of voices going back and forth in this poem are reduced to one voice here, um, the main subject here is talking about God and 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 our our we. Mm. It, it's the whole community um, expressing that they are in the situation. Mm. Let's go ahead and, and read the text then. And I know it, it is twenty two verses long, but again, it does move very rapidly. I think it helps to hear this whole thing together. So we're going to read all of Lamentations chapter five together this morning, and then go back and talk about it verse by verse, of course. So Lamentations five. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? 
Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's the text for today, Lamentations 5, verses 1 to 22. That's the whole chapter. So, Pastor Elmer, as we prepare to look at this, and we've talked you know, about the themes that we've seen in this and that it is a prayer, just looking at the text as a whole, is there a, is there a structure to this poem that you would see that can help us arrange how we go through it? Yeah, sure. So I think in verse 1, you have the, the prayer being set out, um, kind of being the they're entreating the Lord to listen to them, and, and they're entreating the Lord to listen to them because of the situation that they're in. And then verses 2 through 18 is a long section that kind of covers all of the complaints in the prayers, the things that are going wrong, the pains that the people are going through, the things that they are suffering, um, just n- kind of naming them all out. These are the things happening to... You are people, O oh God. Uh, see what kind of horrible state that we're in and have mercy on us. And then 19, they come back and are asking the Lord to, to listen to them, to come back to them, um, to hear them once again, so that the relationship might be restored and that the the horrors of verses 2 through 18 might come to an end. Mm. Right, so we've got almost a sandwich of sorts where where the first part, the last part, really go together, and then in the middle you've got these these complaints. So it's prayer on the outside, and then the the petitions and the reason for the prayer are all found within in that main body in two to two to eighteen. So let's let's start where the lament starts with this prayer, and the very first word I think is is super important. Remember, O Lord, what is that? What are they asking the Lord to do to remember? Yeah, I I think that's such a theologically loaded statement because you're dealing with a people whose entire existence, everything that they were, everything that they had, their entire history was bound together with God. God was the one who who called their ancestor Abraham and made promises to them. God was the one who who took them out of slavery in Egypt. God was the one who gave to them and made with them the covenant of the law. God was the one who gave them the land, which we'll be talking about here in a little bit, that, that wonderful inheritance that they had been given. God was the one who saved them every single time that they kind of fell astray and repented. And, and now they are asking God to remember them, remember the relationship that they had, remember the covenant and the promises that he had made with the people, to remember those times, um, because what has kind of come about over the course of history has changed how the people and the land and their their worship look. So this prayer for the Lord to remember is more than well, let, let's start just here. This is more than the Lord simply calling something to mind, but this is actually calling about him to do something about it, right? Uh, yes. And that is also kind of complicated by the fact that they're asking the Lord to remember them and to do something about it. But at the same time, 
they're also kind of dealing with the contention that the reason why they're in this place is because God has allowed it to happen. So in a way, even though it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about in these terms, um, right now these people are experiencing the God of their salvation as their enemy, and they're kind of entreating him to do something even about that. Talk more about that, that they they are experiencing, they have experienced the God of their salvation now becoming their enemy. Dig, Dig into that a little bit more, because I really think that this, I do think that this poem draws a lot of those themes that we've seen in the Book of Lamentations together as as they begin to deal with it here in, in probably the best way they do throughout this whole book. Yeah. So this is this is one thing that I I think generally speaking over over the course of my life of being a Christian and a Lutheran and now the last about eleven years of being a pastor is we we always like to talk about God and his power and his love and his mercy, but we rarely, rarely stop to, to think about the other side of, of that coin, which is when we are not in a relationship with God in the, in the means and by the manner which he sets up a relationship with us. Um, his existence to us is actually terrifying because God is just, God is fair, God is righteous, and when there is unjust and unrighteous things in the world, he doles out punishment. Um, The people of Israel are in exile. They've seen Jerusalem burn to the ground. They've seen the temple be destroyed. They have experienced all of this kind of pain because over the course of many centuries, the people had forgotten uh, the reason for their existence, which was God God calling them. They thought that their existence was about themselves and their own power, and in doing so, they uh, did the thing that all of us human beings do. We make ourselves our own God. I mean, in the first commandment, as we've talked about many, many times before, you shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And when the people trust themselves... Um, they become their own gods. This is what the the people of Israel did, and because of that, God removed his favor from them. God allowed them to be punished. God used Babylon as his servants to enact this judgment, and right now the people are understanding that their enemy is not even really the the Babylonians, but it's the God who is using them as his uh, agents of punishment. Well, and and also the fact then that the reason that this has transpired, that God has used the Babylonians as his agents to punish his people is because the people have set themselves as enemies of God. And and yeah. this entire book of Lamentations has been a wrestling with that of, of their own guilt as the reason that they are suffering the way that, that they are, recognizing that they've set themselves as enemies of God. God has acted toward them as their enemy because of their sin, their idolatry, their rebellion against him. And and now I think this is where this particular poem is just so helpful to end the book with. What do you do when you come to that? I mean, when you realize that, well, you you pray, you take that to the Lord, because that's the only way out is is through the through the Lord Himself. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. And I think that is a statement that is 
uh, infinitely applicable to our life today because there's so many circumstances when things are just going wrong and broken in life and we we so often think that we can handle them by our own power, our own wisdom, our own strength, our own cunning. And really the only way uh, through the, the pains of this life is to bring them uh, to God, to confess to him who we are and who he is and ask him for mercy. Right. And, and that I think is surprising at times. It doesn't, or that's not the way we would normally go. We would try to fix it ourselves or we would try to avoid God or, or maybe even, you know, think that, well, because we've become an enemy of his and he's acting as if he's our enemy, then, then that means that's who he wants to be. When in fact, quite the opposite, he wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people. And so when we find ourselves in that situation, having rebelled against him, again, rather than say, do what Adam and Eve did in the garden and hide from him, precisely what he wants is for us to go to him to confess and so that he might turn and be merciful instead. Yep. I I don't even have anything to add to that. That's yes. I I thought I heard you you catch your breath there. I thought you were going to keep talking, but that's okay. That's okay. So no, that's no, precisely. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole thing. Like when when we as human beings have problems and we might even have problems with God at some times, the the way to eternal pain and consequence is staying away from Him. I mean, yeah. that is what death is: is being removed from God. The way the way to fix the problem is not to run away from God, but to go to Him, to seek Him in His proper work, which is love towards His people, which is provision towards His people, which is grace and mercy towards His people, which is the thing that we find when we um, confess. I mean, we say it every single we say it every single Sunday in the the confession. But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I mean, this is why we go to him. That's right. And so that is what the people do here. And they lay out their situation in that same vivid language that we've seen them use throughout this book. It comes again, again, in verses 2 through 18. This is the long section of this poem in which the people lay out precisely what's happening among them. And, and we can't look at every single detail, but there's a lot of picture, in, a lot of pictures in here that are really important to pick out. The first is right there in verse two. They say, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. That word inheritance particularly, it sounds like they're lamenting the fact that they've been exiled from their homeland. Why, why is that such a, a big deal for the people of Judah? Yeah, this is such a huge deal because this promise goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to Abraham, because when God told Abram to to pick up his things and go to a land that he did not know of, that God was going to show them, God made a promise to him and said, your, your children, your ancestors are your children are going to be the ones who are going to live in this land, and I'm going to give it to them as an inheritance. In Joshua 1, this is the whole point when Joshua's kind of rallying the troops after the death of Moses and saying, hey, we got to go to, to the other side because we are going to take the inheritance that God has has given to us as his, as his beloved uh, chosen people. And here... Um, because of their idolatry, because of their actions, that inheritance, which was supposed to be that thing that they could rely on forever, that land, 
in a very obvious way has been taken from them. By the time this lament goes out, I mean, you have the vast majority of people in the land of Judah who have literally been removed from the land. Um, The land was taken over, it was conquered, it was ruled by another party, which I think is rightly in this verse called strangers, the Babylonians. These are foreigners, people not native to that land, to whom that land did not belong. Um, And you, you get this very vivid image where those homes that the people lived in, those homes that the people may have lived in for generations there in Judah were now being occupied, but it wasn't their children and grandchildren. It was a people that the, the new rulers of the land um, permitted to live there. So you get a very, very visceral connection between the people and the land and how they've been removed from it in verse two. Right. And I mean, so you, you get a, a sense for, again, why this is such a, a big deal. And yet this is where, I mean, thinking through the book of Lamentations as a whole, the way this particular lament began as a prayer and considering how this book has been arranged, even in this opening lament, I, I sense a bit of hope. And the reason, you know, that word inheritance certainly is tied to the land, but back in, in chapter three, in the, the part of Lamentations that a lot of Christians know, because that's the part that's got a lot more, a very explicit hope, there, it, and it says in Lamentations 3.24, we read this, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. When we talked about that particular verse in Lamentations 3, that word portion is also tied to this inheritance language. And so I guess the, the reason I bring that up is because I, I still, even in the midst of this lament, as they're laying out, okay, this is what's going on and what's wrong, by, by starting with that word, our inheritance has been turned over, on the one hand, they're recognizing, yes, we don't live in the land anymore, but it, it also seems to me that there's a bit of a callback to that chapter three language as well, that, okay, our land's gone, but where are we going to look for hope? Oh yeah, we're crying out to the Lord right now, and he is our portion. He's our inheritance. And so, I mean, I, I don't know, just making those connections for me keeps this this prayer, while it certainly is a lament, and not to, to take any away from that, there's still that note of hope given where we've already been in the book of Lamentations, now that they're taking all of this to the Lord, who's also their, their portion, their inheritance. They, they still have that, they're clinging to that hope. And that's where, again, this, this poem for me just really, it does a, such a nice job of tying things together. Yeah, and I think talking in in those terms is another connection back to verse 1, because I I think in verse 2, if they're saying our inheritance has been turned over, I think you kind of, you you have at least a subtle idea that the inheritance still belongs to them um, as a promise from God. And one of the things that they might be asking the Lord to remember is that, not just based on the land, but based on that special relationship that, that God did set out between him and his people. Mm. Uh, when he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the hands of Egypt. That's right. Yeah, and that, that constant refrain that he would be their God and they would be his people, that's what, what yeah. he desires for them. As this lament continues into verse 3, the, the people describe how they are in terms of orphans, and widows. And I, I mean, that stands out to me. You've got orphans and widows put together. Those are two of the most marginalized groups in the Old Testament, two groups that call for 
the the most care for God's from God's people. And here the people of Israel now are crying out to the Lord saying, this is who we are. Again, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's really tugging at, at, I'm thinking through the way that God, God's word speaks about orphans and widows and now seeing them here, that's the state we're in. Again, this, this plea to God for his help comes through loud and clear there in verse three. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have orphans and widows. These are people in the Old Testament who needed special care from the community because they had really no means of provision for themselves. And here you, you kind of have a nice double meaning because on one hand, because of their situation, they are a people who are helpless, like orphans, fatherless, and like widows. And at the same time, it also draws up some very, very visceral image as to how the people got to this place in the first place. The last time that uh, we spoke on Sharper Iron, we were studying kind of the latter chapters of Jeremiah. And when the Babylonians come into town, it was not a, a happy party that they were going through in the land. Um, the siege was long, it was brutal, there was immense violence, and during that time, not only were they figuratively orphans and widows, but many of them likely were orphans and widows because of the siege of Jerusalem. I mean, if you if you think about it this way, if, if they had an army to fight against the Babylonians, who were the people fighting? It was the fathers, many of them probably died, it was the young men who would have been the provision for the, the mothers in the, in the case of the father dying. There's probably children who were left as orphans because of parents dying in the, in the siege. So you, you have an, a nice uh, a double meaning here in, in verse 3, which just kind of adds to the, the physical and spiritual suffering that these people are going through. Yeah, we, we certainly see that just in those two terms, orphans and widows. And we're going to continue to see the suffering that the people are undergoing and also the hope that they have crying out to the Lord here in Lamentations 5. But we're going to do that after the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. Talking Lamentations Chapter 5 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, August 26th. We're studying Lamentations chapter 5, verses 1 to 22 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, prior to the break, we were talking about that image in verse 3 and 4. The people say they become orphans, mothers like widows. I wonder if there's a, a hint of confession in there as well, because in the sense that they've been an orphan, they've forsaken God as their father, they're a widow. This was an image that came up all the way back in Lamentations chapter 1. They've left the Lord as their husband. What Do you, do you think that's also entailed in this verse? I, I think you can you can definitely make that argument because 
the the reason why these people are who they are and the reason why these people have what they have has always become was has always been because of the relationship that they had with God. And now that they forsook God and God seems to be forsaking them, they no longer have that relationship, so they are left on their own as orphans, as fatherless, as as widows, because they're no longer receiving that care and provision that they once had from their Heavenly Father. How does that tie into the next verse about paying for water or buying wood? Yeah, so in in the history of Israel, God has always been the one who has provided. Part of that inheritance land of Canaan uh, language you get in the Old Testament, it was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. When the people were living in the land, um, they had from the land, they had from God everything that they needed. They had water to drink, they had food to eat, they had wood to build with and to make fires. And now that they do not have that relationship, now that they don't have that land, now that they don't have um, their God, those things that they used to have that they took for granted have now become expensive and difficult. Mm-hmm. My mind went to Isaiah chapter 55, where the Lord calls his people to to come and buy what I think water, not water, wine and milk and, and all these goods. But then he says, buy them without cost, you know, that you, you buy yeah. them and they're for free. He's he is the one who provides. And now the total opposite of that, they have to pay for these things because they've they've forsaken the Lord. So the, the text continues, then you've got pursuers at next, you know, weary, no rest, talk of Egypt and Assyria to get their bread. What? And I think maybe culminating a bit, you know, if we can maybe draw a slight section break, perhaps with verse seven, where this, this confession of sin on the behalf of the fathers, I think implying a guilt of the people themselves who are praying it also. And, and that's the reason for what's happening. Yeah, I note specifically on 6, it's very, very interesting that in this prayer of lament and confession, they talk about Egypt and, and Assyria because in the past, those were kind of two major powers of the ancient Near Eastern world. And at various occasions, the people of Judah and Israel had allied with these type of folks and or paid tribute to them. And in this particular case, I think what they're um, confessing is that those alliances that they tried to come up with by their own cunning and their own uh, allegiance and their own payment uh, ended up not helping them in the long run. Specifically in the the fight with the Babylonians, uh, they did call for the help of the Egyptians and as we talked last time on Sharper Iron, uh, they did get a little bit of a reprieve when the Babylonians went to fight the Egyptian army, but it ended up not being something that saved their life. So here you have kind of an admission that their old way of doing business politically did not serve them in the long run. Yeah, I, I think that's that's in the background. And again, what a, what a contrast in that admission here in verse 6. You know, in the past... We looked to foreign nations for help, and in the midst of what they're doing at the moment, they're crying out to the Lord for help. So it does, I mean, yeah. again, you have that spirit of repentance and hope that I think comes through just in, in the way that they admit their sin there in verse 6. Agreed. Absolutely. 
So yeah, and then with Kevin, they're admitting that they've sinned. They've admitted that their father sinned because this was a generational thing that got them in this kind of trouble. And verse seven always kind of makes me reflect back to the the Ten Commandments, how mm-hmm. God does uh, pay the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. But he um, he gives all good things to those who do love him. I think you've got a nice parallel in language there, and they're recognizing that they are in that state where they are suffering the consequences of their and their ancestors' actions. Yeah, and I mean, what a what a turn that's that's about to happen within that as they recognize what had been handed down to them, this idolatry in which they had continued, that they are bearing the consequences for what their fathers gave them and what they themselves used. Now they're they're making that turn in repentance, which I you know I mean I think the, to bring up what's it's in the catechism as the close of the commandments is a fantastic thing because that is what the Lord desires to do is to turn people from their sins so that He might show His mercy, His love, His His faithfulness to them, and I, I mean I, that's what's happening I think within this very lament. So absolutely. Pastor Elmer, let's let's move into verse eight. This is a, perhaps a strange thing, or at least it sounds a bit strange to say slaves rule over us. They're under the the rule of the Babylonians. What does what what, what might that mean that slaves rule over us? Yeah, um, here instead of God being their ruler, instead of a king being their ruler, a Davidic king in particular, what you have here is you have servants, you have slaves of somebody ruling over them, and that person is Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And I think it's very, very uncomfortable to think in these terms, but even though he would not confess it, Nebuchadnezzar would be a a king who was a servant and a slave of God. The, the reason why I say this is because very, very clearly in Jeremiah 27, God tells his people he is going to use Nebuchadnezzar by name as his servant to enact this justice upon his people. Um, and that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, slaves of Yahweh are the ones who are now uh, ruling over them and causing them all of this grief. Uh, when before they had Yahweh as their king and they got to live freely under him. Yeah, I mean, my my mind had gone to that as well, how the Lord does call Nebuchadnezzar his own servant within the book of Jeremiah, I think more than once, in fact. And and I also wonder, too, with just this language of slaves, if we, we also might understand it in a you know, this is this is poetry, and there's going to be figurative language, and and recognizing you know that the Babylonians calling them slaves is is to say just to really lament how bad their situation is. It's a, it's just a complete reversal of what it should be, without necessarily speaking of you know. Although I mean, I'm sure some Babylonian slaves or Babylonian servants tried to you know like lorded over the Israelites, you know, looked down, they're looked down by just about everybody in Babylonian society would have been better than the Israelites. And so in there, there is that sense of maybe with within the Babylonian totem pole, Israel's on the bottom, even below the slaves. And, and if that is the, the, the case, then one of the things I think this does to be ruled over by slaves, that puts them even lower than they were in Egypt, 
I mean, in Egypt, they were the slaves. And here they're saying we're even lower than that now, which again, I think, I mean, certainly goes to show just how low they are. But if I can tie it back to the hope in the book of Jeremiah, we know that the Lord says his bringing his people out of exile is going to be an even greater thing than what he did for the people in the Exodus from Egypt. So maybe again, even in this language, a a bit of both going on of the despair, the lament, but also the hope in the fact that they're crying out to the Lord to deliver them. Yeah. And I I think that's just made stronger by once they get through all of these complaints, that's exactly what they are at least hoping that the Lord is going to hear them and act on their benefit. They always have that hope. The next two verses, 9 and 10, deal with the matter of what they're eating again. They're talking about how they get their bread in verse 9, and then this matter of, of famine in verse 10. What what are some of the images that we see there? Yeah, I mean, kind of kind of like it was back in a couple, a couple verses ago, they're having a very difficult time getting that thing, the things that they need to support their daily lives, something that we might call daily bread. Nothing is easy anymore. Getting the bread, getting stuff to, to bake, it's difficult. Apparently, they are having issues with um, violent people in the wilderness. When they go out to either collect their grain or to gather wood, they always face uh, the threat of the sword. Um, skin being hot is an oven burning heat of famine. I mean, these people are are starving. You can almost see their faces becoming emaciated because of the difficulty by which they are getting the the simple calories that they need to keep their bodies alive. Mm. Yeah, very, very stark images here of the suffering of the people all along, really. And it, it I think it's really building to a climax in this as, as the text continues into verses 11 through 14. And take us into these images as you see them. Essentially, what, what I see in these is just about any group within the people of Judah, they are suffering in some terrible way. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, with 11 through 14, especially 11 and 12, kind of tie back to that verse 9, getting bread peril of their lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Apparently, under... Well, now thinking about it, I didn't think about it until you were you're talking about talking about the slaves rolling over us too. They seem to be in a state where the the people are very very unsure of where their physical protection is going to come from. Mm-hmm. There's kind of no no place in society. There's no position in society where where people feel safe and secure. I mean, in eleven, you have this talk about. Um, women being raped in Zion. Apparently there's nobody there able to uh, protect the women from being abused in this way. The The rulers don't even get any quarter because uh, the rulers are be- were one of the first groups to be taken away into exile, and many of them were were killed. So being a part of the, the noble ruling class didn't help out. Um, being an elder, which was a was a big part of Jewish life, having respect for the elders, not even their age is giving them any privilege. There's this is just how how far society has degraded now that God has removed kind of His hand of protection. That there there is no place, there's no institution, there's no status that allows people to to be safe and secure. Hmm. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, you see the the terrible situation in which the people of God find themselves because of their own sin, they, they recognize, but they're not afraid to lay it out before the Lord to say, this is what we're going through. And ultimately, so that they can ask him to deliver because he's their only hope. As, as that text continues into verses 15 and following, you know, kind of wrapping some of these things together, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. That, that last phrase there, it's the, the exact opposite of what King David prayed in Psalm 30, where he says that the Lord turned his mourning into dancing. Now they say, no, it's yeah. been turned the other way. And although it's not explicit there, just given the context where it says our dancing has been turned well, who did the turning? Again, it's a recognition the Lord has done this. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, 15 through 18 even com- even kind of ties back to 13 and 14, too, because you, you get this very, very um, dark image of kind of the socio-political life of Israel, where young men and and boys and old men had kind of their place at the city gate where they did business and and congregated and played music and danced and now instead of the the lives of of the the people of judah being focused around those kind of joyous events happening at the gate now they're being compelled to work now that they're they don't have time to play music that the old men aren't there anymore because they have no place and there's no respect and and then the joy leaving there's no music so there's no dancing and 15 through 18 you also get images of one of the reasons why their joy is gone is because not only have they lost the land not only have they have lost the city but they've kind of lost the, the main focal point of the city, which is Mount Zion and the temple, a place where people would gather to sacrifice, but also to play music, to sing praises to the Lord, to dance, and they have none of this anymore. And and all these images kind of show the the total depraved state of them, the total depraved state of the land, um, in contrast to what it used to be, a land full of joy, a land full of singing, a land full of dancing, a land full of um, security, a land full of plenty, a land full of the forgiveness that was found at the at the horns of the altar when the when the blood was poured on it for the forgiveness of sins, and now they have none of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, think about the way that this, again, this section thinking 2 through 18 as the people laying out what's happened. It started with the inheritance being gone, and, and now toward the end, you know, kind of the things that were really important involved with that inheritance include, I think in verse 16, the crown falling from the head, maybe a, a reference to, you know, King Zedekiah of the line of David, what happened to him? He was carried off into exile after having been blinded and watching his own sons killed in front of him. And and also, as you mentioned, Mount Zion, the, the temple, all of these things, you know, the loss of the land, the loss of the king, the loss of the temple, all of these things are just overwhelming for the people. Perhaps, Pastor Ulmer, we did spend a good amount of time talking about the inheritance of the land at the beginning. Tell us a little bit more on why the Davidic king and the temple are also such key things for the people that they're mourning here. Yeah, I mean, the the Davidic king, 
is important because God made multiple promises to David that one of his offspring would sit on that throne forever. That was kind of seen as the as the Jewish people of one of those promises that was going to carry them through forever and something that they put a lot of hope and trust in. And now they're living in a world where there is no person sitting on the throne of David and they don't quite yet know how God is going to make good on that promise to King David. And then Mount Zion with the temple, I, I think sometimes it's hard for us as, as Christians to understand how important that it was for these people that Mount Zion was, was, was a temple, but it was also the place where when people needed to know where God was, when they needed to, entreat of him when they needed to confess their sins, when they needed to make sacrifice for them, their sins at the temple and on the, the Ark of the Covenant, they knew exactly where God promised to be for them. And now that the temple was in ruins and desolate and has jackals prowling o- over it, the, the people don't have a place kind of in creation where when they need to experience God, they know for absolute certain they can do so. So that brings us through verse 18. And and we see how, again, the lives of the people of Judah have been turned completely upside down. They're mourning over all of this, but they're doing so in the context of prayer. And they turn back to that prayer very directly in verse 19 in, in a way that I think connects very well in what we were just saying. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. So, yes, the crown has fallen from their head in verse 16, but now their hope returns as they talk to the Lord as the one who reigns forever and his throne, that one endures to all generations. How how is the turn being made here in verse 19 back to the prayer? Yeah, this is fantastic because I think human beings' natures, when they experience persecution and terror like the Israelites had here. It would be hard to make a statement about God being great and God uh, maintaining all power and authority. But this is what they do. In verses 19 through 22, the, the people who are praying completely and immediately declare that God is still sovereign. The crown might have fallen off their heads, but the crown still is possessed by somebody, and they're declaring that that person is the Lord. And even though they might not be experiencing what we might call the fullness of the kingdom of God at this moment, they have a lot of faith that it still exists wherever he is, and that they're kind of entreating him for his uh, presence to bring it back. Yeah, I mean, I think this this language of, and you're right to tie it to the kingdom of God. I mean, that's that's huge here to recognize God as king in the midst of everything that's going on is is a very important part of of the faith in which they offer this prayer. And and as they continue to pray here, I mean, it's it's pretty very real if I can say it that way. You know, why why do you forget us? What's going on? Why do you forsake yeah. us? I mean, that returning to that thought of remembering from the beginning. And this prayer of of restoration, I mean, that's, you know, on the one hand, it, it may strike us like, wow, that's that's really direct. 
and yet I think that's precisely the way they need to pray because that's where they are. They've, they are so, you know, I mean, they're at the bottom and, and the only place for them to look is to ask the Lord to help. Yeah. And I mean, for what it's worth here, kind of pastor to pastor, oh, if we would be this bold when we prayed, that when they're experiencing kind of the back of the Lord here, they, number one, recognize that the kingship still belongs to him. And number two, just to be so bold to say, okay, God, we realize the situation that we got ourselves into. We understand the place. We understand who we are. We understand how you are okay, don't don't leave us hanging forever. Please come back to us because you're you're the only hope that we have. And and they even kind of double down to that when they get into twenty one because they're asking God to restore him to them. They understand that there's nothing that they can do to fix this. That it has to be his initiative. And um, they want it to happen quickly because they they realize the poor state that they are in, both um, physically and spiritually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this this prayer, this is why I really appreciate the way that this wraps it up. And, and again, you see, they know where they are. They know they're at rock bottom and they know why they're there. They've sinned and the Lord has put them there. This is his wrath that has come upon them. But, but what do you do there? I mean, the only thing to do there is to turn to the Lord. And, and as opposed to just maybe what well, you might say, whining about it or, or just pitying yourself over it, but but rather this honest confession and then the honest crying out to the Lord, like, we know we've sinned. You've, you've become our enemy. Restore us. Rather than yeah. running away from it, like dealing with it, taking it to him as the only one. And, and the only way you can do something like that, when, when it looks like God is your enemy, the only way you can cry out to him like this is if there is actually faith there already. And that's why, I mean, I just, I love the way that this, this poem works and, and how it really ties the book of Lamentations together in that way. They've, it seems they've come to this realization, the word has brought them to this realization, that the only way out of the mess they've dug themselves into is by going to the God who put them there in hopes of his mercy, because that ultimately is, is who he is. He's their merciful, faithful, loving God. Yeah. And he's merciful. He is faithful. And he's also a God who renews. He's a God who makes things new again. He is a God who, when people break their covenants with him, when people break their bond with him, he makes those things new so that people can become his people again and again and again. And they are bold and they are direct in asking him for this. And I, and I think that that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And and, and not and in their boldness, though, they're also not presumptuous. And, and that's where I think, you no. know, that very last verse, while it, it maybe strikes us as well, like backing off a little bit, I don't know that they're backing off, but they're just recognizing God is God, we're not, and we're throwing ourselves completely into his hands, however he chooses to treat us. And that's where I think that that last phrase, although it strikes us, well, wait, where did that come from? This is an example of them just not being presumptuous anymore, of not thinking that God has to do whatever they want him to do, but rather letting him be God and knowing that whatever that looks like, that's going to be good and right. Yeah, I know speaking for my myself as kind of an American Lutheran Christian, this kind of language and way of thinking kind of is really off-putting because we 
we on a very shallow level understand what sovereignty is. These people understand what sovereignty is. They understand the boot that they are under from Babylon, and they understand truly what it means for God to be king, that God can do what he wills. Now they hope in him, they trust in him, they recall him to remember his promises, but they also understand that they, they cannot make God do something that he does not want to do. Hmm. They, they just don't have that capability. Right, and, and they pray in that trust that whatever God chooses to do, because of his good and gracious will, it will be good, it will be gracious, it will be right. Uh, Pastor yes. Ulmer, we got about two minutes here on the morning. As you reflect on Lamentations 5 and, and really the book as a whole, the final thoughts help us, and especially help us from this chapter, help us to see our Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's that's the thing that we know as Christians, that no matter what kind of trouble we find ourselves in because we we fall so much due to our own idolatry and faithlessness, we know that God sits on his throne forever, and we know his answer to the people of Israel and to us, the people who repent and call upon his name, that his answer to us is Jesus Christ his son that he sent into the world that he might die and raised him up again, that sin, death, and the devil might be defeated by his open grave. We know what his answer is to us. That answer is Jesus, it's forgiveness, and it's life. Pastor Matt Ulmer is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas, helping us today with Lamentations chapter 5, verses 1 to 22. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It was a wonderful pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Tomorrow we start a series on some minor prophets around this same time period. So if you have any questions about Obadiah, Habakkuk, or Zephaniah, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.